I'm going to try to do something I've never really done in here before. And so I hope that uh, you all are ready to strap on the uh, thinking cap. And how many of you like history? Oh, good. I'm so glad to see that. You know, the few of you who are not sure. But uh, yeah. Um, there has been so much talk about Israel and the situation in Israel, not only from just a geopolitical point of view, not just from a humanitarian point of view, but also from a religious point of view, of course. How can you separate Israel or the region from, from religion? Um, but questions about how does this impact us? What's going on? How are we supposed to understand this? How did this happen? Why is it that for our entire lifetimes there has been this intractable situation in the Middle East um, that just never seems to change? How did we get here? And so I wanted to take some time. We were talking about maybe having a question and answer, but I think um, today is going to end up being more one way as we just try to understand what's going on. Uh, and then maybe if you have a lot of questions, we can take that up next Sunday and, uh, and maybe spend some time there. I want to preface what I'm going to say here this morning by telling you once again that the effect is a micro uh, mission. We, just as uh, Nina was talking about, we are here to try to work with individuals to help them engage their own interior journeys that then they can take out on the road. You can take it into the macro. You can take it into your, your families, your communities, your nation, your world, whatever you need to do. And once you have done the interior work and gotten yourself to a place of balance, then if you want to go out and um, you know carry signs on the street corner or support whatever, that's great. But you're doing it from a place where you can now be balanced enough to be be part of the solution and not just more a part of the problem. And so we're always working that way. Now, I know when it comes to Israel, there are such passionate feelings and opinions and, and, uh, and outrage on both sides. That's not where we're going today. That's not what I'm going to try to get to today. You should, at the end of today, not know my opinion on anything because that's not important. What is important is how did we get here? And how does where we are in our world and where we are in the Middle East impact us as individuals? How does it impact our lives going forward? I don't want to drive any wedges within our community, which can happen with these, these really strong political issues. And, uh, and even the atrocities that we've seen in the last month, you know, putting those aside, just trying to understand where did these two sides get to? that this kind of thing is happening, that we're not condoning the atrocities, of course. They are what they are, and we know how we feel about those on either side. But again, how did we get here? So if we can understand history, understand it from both sides, and at the same time, see if we can maintain some liminal space. And I always talk about that, maintaining liminal space, which means that we are standing on the threshold between the two camps. We're not falling down to one side or another so that we can still, even with our own passionately held beliefs, be able to criticize our camp when the need is there and to be able to see truth from the other side when it comes to us from a direction that we don't expect. We want to be able to do those things. And just as we talked about last weekend, we still need to be able to love the enemy. And I know that just sounds all Pollyanna and all greeting card-ish, especially in the face of what's gone on in Israel in the last month. But remember, loving the enemy for our purposes right here and right now can simply mean trying to understand 
how we got here, why both sides feel as passionately as they do about what they call their homeland. That may be all we can do, but at least we're doing that much so that we don't sacrifice our own humanity as we approach issues that are inhuman. What I wanted to do this morning is do a 4,000-year flyby. How about that? 4,000 years. Now, you know, this is going to be just of a particular piece of land and a very small piece of land and the people that surround it. I don't know if you all remember James Michener. He he wrote Hawaii and he wrote uh, The Source and he used to do these sprawling epics, but they were about a specific piece of land, especially The Source. If you ever read that, it was just about a tell just a, a mound in, in Israel, but as you went down through the, the archaeological dig, you went back in history, and he just told this long story about this one piece of land. Essentially, we're going to do the same thing. We're going to be looking at this history, both from a traditional point of view and also from a historical point of view. Now, the tradition means that there really is no archaeological evidence. It isn't accepted as history. It is what the narrative is that a people tell themselves about their origins, about their story. And so for us, that's going to come from the Bible, of course. That's going to be the traditional part. And then where there is archaeological evidence, then we can talk about the history as well. Because both of those views, both the traditional and the historical, are impacting both sides of this conflict. You can bet on that. They are aware of all of this as they look at their homeland and why they feel that it is their homeland. Now, this region is absolutely unique because it is the seat of the three Abrahamic religions, the three monotheistic religions of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. All of them see themselves as having the same God, the same founder in the sense of Abraham being the father of all three religions, and also having the same ties to the land, and especially to the city of Jerusalem. All those are present here. All these three religions are located in this same space, sharing so much, and yet they never get along. Not from the very beginning. None of them have gotten along. They're always at odds with each other. They're always in conflict with each other. Now, Judaism was first, now, there's no real dates for this, but at least you can say that Judaism and the Hebrew people were on the map by the second millennium BCE, somewhere in, you know, 14, 1500 BCE. Um, BCE is the, before the Common Era. It's the new scientific way of saying BC and AD. So you got BCE and CE, so I'll use that. Christianity comes on next on the scene in the first century CE, common era, right? And then Islam doesn't come on to the, to the scene until the 7th century CE. 610 is when uh, Muhammad had his visions in the city of Mecca. And then 622 is when he actually started his conquest from the city of Medina, both in today's Saudi Arabia. And so that kind of gives you an idea. Judaism is much older than the other two. But they all look back to Abraham as the, as the source, as the beginning. Now, the story of Abraham and the story of the beginnings of, of the Hebrew nation are told in Genesis and Exodus in the Old Testament. And these are traditional because we have no dates. We can't tie anything to dates, and we don't really have any archaeological certainty, the, the archaeologists will tell us, for what happens in the book of Genesis or Exodus. 
But Abraham is the start of everything. He's called by God from the land of Ur, which would be in Mesopotamia right now, between the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers. And even though we don't have any dates for him, the traditional date for the Exodus is 1450. That would be BCE. All right. And we also traditionally are told that the Jews were enslaved or at least in Egypt for about 400 years. And we know that Abraham is three generations from Joseph, who was the one who was sold into slavery into Egypt and then brought his whole family in when there was a famine in the land. So if we do all of that calculation and say, okay, 1450 plus 400 plus three generations, we're getting to about 18 or 1900 BCE as a possible date, at least a traditional date for Abraham. This is how far back he goes. And if you know the story of Abraham, Abraham comes to this land and he's married to Sarai, who later becomes Sarah. He was Avram, beginning, he becomes Abraham. And they're getting older and they have no child. And of course, that is a huge deal in, in this culture. And so Sarai actually is the one who suggests that he goes into Hagar, her Egyptian slave handmaiden, and impregnate her so at least that they would have a son. And he does that. And the son that they have together is Ishmael. But then, miraculously, when she's about 100 years old, Sarah gives birth as well to Isaac. So at that point... Hagar is on the outs. She doesn't want her or her son anywhere around, and so they are put off and sent away. Traditionally, Ishmael is the father of the Arab race, and Isaac is the father of the 12 tribes of the Hebrew race. And so we see that bifurcation between the two. Okay, And we can see how now the Arabs and the Jews trace their lineage back to Abraham. And, of course, Abram's son, Isaac, is a father of the fraternal twins, Esau and Jacob. Esau comes out first. Jacob is holding on to his heel. He's a supplanter, a heel catcher. That's what Jacob means, right? But then through the machinations of, of what goes on, Jacob steals his father's blessing, and he becomes the one who supplants Esau as the father of the tribe. He has 12 sons. And you know the story of the 12 sons. Probably Joseph is the second to the youngest. He's the one with the multicolored coat and all of the favor of his father. And the jealous brothers sell him into slavery, into Egypt. And then they end up all in Egypt and for a traditional 400 years. So that is the, the close of Genesis. The book of Genesis ends with Joseph and the entire family in Egypt. Exodus picks it up from there. And the story of the Exodus, as we said, traditionally 1450, the Exodus into the promised land. Moses carries the ball for 40 years, but he doesn't get to go into the promised land. So he dies on Mount Nebo, and Joshua, the son of Nun, is the one who takes up for him. And Joshua is credited with the actual conquest of Canaan, Canaan in their language which is the area of what we call now the Levant. I like to use the Levant because it gets us away from either St. Israel or Palestine, since that's the, con the, the contest right now. But the Levant is the entire eastern Mediterranean seaboard. We probably should have a map that I could point to right now. But what is Lebanon and Israel, and then behind them, Syria and Jordan, that would all be considered the area of what is called the Levant. And so this is the area that... Joshua crosses the Jordan River and goes into and starts conquering each one of those, those kingdoms in turn until they occupy the entire region. 
There are no dates for this archaeologically. There is nothing that can show us around this time, the 15th century BCE, that any of this conquest took place. There are some scholars who see that 200 years later in the 13th century that there was evidence for some conquest. Maybe our timetable is off. We don't really know. What we do know, though, is by about 1,000, there is a unified kingdom in Israel. Traditionally, that's under David. David is the one who unifies the two kingdoms, or the 12 tribes together into a unified kingdom. His son is Solomon by Bathsheba, and um, he's the one who grows it to an immense, traditionally, an immense proportion. But on his death, it fractures and splits into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. Again, there's a lot of controversy here as to whether these dates are real, but that's the traditional story. But what we can nail down in archaeology is by the 8th century, Assyria attacks and conquers the northern kingdom of Israel, takes those ten tribes off into, into slavery. What they would do is they would force march. If they went in and conquered a region, to make that region unable to be able to revolt and rebel, they would take a portion of that population and force march them into another part of their empire and then do the reverse so that you have these mixed, confused races that eventually would intermarry and then would lose their ethnic identity, and then they would be less likely to rebel. That's exactly what the Assyrians do. The ten tribes go away, they go into obscurity, and they're never seen again on history's stage. Although there are remnants of them in what is northern Iraq, now in the mountain areas, still Aramaic-speaking peoples, it's really interesting. And we also know that in the 6th century, a couple hundred years later, Babylon attacks Judah, the southern two uh, tribes in the kingdom of Judah, and conquers that and destroys the, the temple in that, in that conquest, the Temple of Solomon. And those people are forced marched into Babylon. Not all of them, a portion of them. There are always those who remain. And that's going to be really important for us to understand. From whenever there was a kingdom... Uh, of Hebrews in the Levant, there was a continuous Jewish presence there all along. Even through all of these conquests we're talking about, they remained. There was always a remnant that stayed there. And this is important to their identity as well. Well, Babylon is taken over by Persia within 50 years or so. And the, 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 the emperor of Persia, Cyrus the Great, allows the Jews to go back if they want to go back to their homeland. Some do. Some are at home. Now, they're three generations in, 70 years or so. And so a lot of them stay in Babylon, but a remnant come back, and they start rebuilding. They rebuild the temple. They rebuild the city walls. And they, can be stay, they are rebuilding their, their lives and trying to reestablish uh, Israel as a nation. And then the, uh, the Babylonians are taken over, uh, supplanted by the Greeks under Alexander the Great in the 300s BCE. And um, the Greeks, and Alexander dies and his empire is split up. And then the uh, Antiochus Epiphanes is the one who takes over the area of the Levant. And he is so extreme that the Jews can't live under his rule. And so they rebel in the second century BCE, what's called the Maccabean Revolt. You may have heard of that. And they establish a Hasmonean dynasty. Only lasts for about 120 years. But this is this brief period of semi-independence for Israel in that second and first century BCE. First that they've had since David and Solomon and the first kings after Solomon 
Um, everything else has been under foreign rule. But then immediately in 63 BCE, the Romans come in and they take Israel again. From that point on, Israel, the, the Levant, is under foreign domination all the way until 1948. It's going to be power after power after power that takes them. So Rome has, uh, has the Levant at the time of Jesus. Rome itself falls in 476 CE. But it had already split into Western and Eastern Empire. Constantine is the one who reestablished his capital, at, at, which was Byzantium. He renamed it Constantinople in honor of himself, of course. And that empire, the Eastern Empire, lasts for another thousand years after Rome falls. And they are the ones who are in control of the Levant. Now, what has happened under Rome, though, is really interesting. The Jews rebel under Rome in 66 to 70, and they have the first Jewish-Roman war. That is when Titus comes in and destroys the temple and, and destroys the city of Jerusalem. And the Jews are scattered, and they have to reinvent themselves. But enough still remain so that by 134, they revolt again known as the Bar Kokhba revolt. By this time, Hadrian is on the throne. He puts it down, and then he goes in and raises Jerusalem to the ground. He's just had it with these people. They just won't play ball with the empire. He raises it to the ground. He sows the fields with salt. He, he establishes a new western city, uh, Iolina, Capitolina, and makes a decree that no Jew on pain of death can live anymore in the area. Of course, they still do, but they have to be undercover. They have to be under wraps. The one thing that he does do that is really significant and lasting is that he renames the place. And what does he rename it? But Palestina. Why? Because the Philistines were the ancestral enemies of the Jews, and he's putting a thumb in their eye by renaming their land Palestine in honor of their enemies. And that moves forward. Through all of history, there never is an actual Palestine as a state, as an autonomous state. It's a name given by the emperor to a region that was always now going to be controlled by some foreign power or another. Now, we mentioned that Islam rises in the 7th century CE. So by 680 or so, the, the armies of Islam come in and they displace the Byzantines who had controlled since Rome fell. And now it becomes part of the caliphate. Now they bring in the Arabs. Now it turns to Muslim control. And of course, the uh, Christians in Europe are aghast that the Arabs, the infidels, as they see them, now control the Holy Land. So now enter the Crusades. And the first Crusade is the one that retakes Jerusalem and retakes Jerusalem and establishes the kingdom of, Ju of Jerusalem, now administered by Europeans, mostly French and, and British and, and other European nations. And that lasts for 200 years before Saladin comes in and takes Jerusalem back. If you ever see the Kingdom of Heaven movie, it's all about that conquest, reconquest of Jerusalem. But he only holds it for a little while. Richard the Lionheart sends another crusade, takes it back, and there's this uneasy tussle back and forth. But the crusades are over by about 1300, and the Arabs win. The Muslims win. There is no more Christian presence anymore. And that holds until about the 6th century, 580, what is it, when the Ottoman Turks come in, and they're not Arabs, 
they're Muslim, but they're not Arabs. And they conquer the Levant now, and they take it away from the Arabs. And that they hold for, um, it's uh, um, 1516, the Turks take the, the Levant, and they hold it all the way up to World War I, 1917 is when they lose it again. So the Turks have ruled the Levant now for 400 years at the start of World War I, and they allied themselves with Germany because the Allies wouldn't have them. All this time, there have been Arabs now and Jews living together side by side in the Levant since the 600s. And now we're talking about World War I, 1917. So for that thousand-year period, you've had these people living side by side under the rule of some foreign power. Now, Britain is fighting the Turks in the Middle East during World War I, and they ally themselves with the Arabs. At least they try to. This is where Lawrence of Arabia comes into play. So they ask the Turks to stage a rebellion. I'm sorry, they ask the Arabs to stage a rebellion against the Turks who have held their land for centuries. And if they do that, then on the, at the end of the war, they will grant independence to these Arab nations. And the Arabs agree, and uh, they stage their rebellion. The Turks are defeated. World War II ends. The Allies win. And what does Britain do? They collude with France, and they divvy up the Levant for themselves. France takes Syria, and Britain takes what is now Palestine, and what they called Transjordan, which, is, which became Jordan. And, of course, they betray the Arabs, who they promised their independence Obviously, that's not going to sit well. And then to add insult to injury, the foreign secretary, Balfour of, of England in 1917, just before the war ended, came up with the Balfour Declaration, which was showing support for creating a Jewish homeland in Palestine. So not only are the Arabs betrayed and not given independence, now Britain comes forward with this declaration to create a Jewish homeland in the same area. And so it's a double betrayal that they're hit with. At the end of the war, the League of Nations was formed, and President Roosevelt was very proud of that because he had a hand in that. And the whole mission of the League of Nations was to prevent another world war. So in 20 years, it failed miserably, and the League of Nations was disbanded. But at the time that it was formed in 1920, just two years after the formal end of the war, when all of the negotiations are still underway, the League of Nations is tasked with dealing with these lands that used to belong to the central powers, the Turks and the Germans and all the other players on the losing side. What do you do with their lands and their territories beyond their own borders? And what the League of Nations did was come up with what they called a mandate system, and so they would create mandates of areas and give them to players on the winning side to administer, they said, until such time as they could stand alone. So it was supposed to be a temporary assist until they could stand alone. And you know how those things usually go, right? Yeah, they just, you put something in place and it just never goes away. Britain was given what is the, what they called mandatory Palestine. This is important for you to pay attention to because mandatory Palestine is the beginning of everything that we see in the last hundred years. This is where it all started. Mandatory Palestine included what we now know as Israel and Jordan. That was the mandate for Britain and what they were, were 
holding on to. In a sense, the League of Nations just rubber-stamped what Britain had already done with France in the area that they had already taken. And the Jordan River was then drawn as a separation between Palestine proper and Transjordan, over the Jordan, which is now the, the, basically the same lines that we see between Israel and Jordan. So we have this set up. He sets the stage for everything that's going to follow till the present. Backing up just maybe 50, 75 years, there was a movement called the Zionist movement that was worldwide. It was Jews in the diaspora, Jews in the scattering that were forming a movement to try to reestablish a homeland for themselves. Interestingly enough, it wasn't necessarily going to be Palestine. They were looking at Uganda, they were looking at Madagascar, they were looking at Australia, they were looking at even uh, areas in the United States where they could reestablish a homeland. But of course, Palestine was where they were traditionally from, but they were being kind of pragmatic about it. We needed a homeland, someplace that we could call our own. And so this is what they were trying to do at the time that the war is ending. And when Palestine, when, um, when the Balfour Declaration was made public and when mandatory Palestine was put in place, what it did was open the door in the Jewish mind for them to now go back to Palestine. And Jews began migrating from all over the world, coming back to Palestine. They were reestablishing Jewish institutions in the region, even though it was still just under British control. And it was obviously growing tension between these immigrants and the existing Arab population that was already there. Riots and armed conflicts started to occur. And in 1936, there was an Arab revolt from 1936 to 1939. And then there was a Jewish insurgency from 1944 to 1948, right in the middle of World War II. And with all this going on and with the advent of World War II, Britain was becoming absolutely exhausted financially in terms of their resources. And the popular support at home was eroding for them to be in Palestine, for them to be trying to administer this land. They just didn't have the stomach for it anymore. I mean, think about the United States and Afghanistan for 20 years. How much public support eroded from that that was there at the beginning? The public is just done with it. All this money that's going out there someplace that could be used here at home, same thing is happening to Britain with regard to Palestine. World War II takes place, of course, and the Holocaust takes place, which really turns public sentiment in favor of the Jews because of what they went through at the hands of Hitler and the Nazis. Obviously, the Allies win the war. The League of Nations is dissolved because it was an utter failure in doing what it was supposed to do. And the United Nations is now formed. So we have the UN being formed in place of the League of Nations. At this time, Britain just announces unilaterally that it's going to end its own mandate in Palestine on May 14, 1948. It's going to just pull out. It's done. Immediately, Jordan, Transjordan, declares its own independence in 1946. And then the UN is now tasked with how do we administer these lands as we're trying to get out of World War II. So with the... UN does is draft a plan of partition. And their plan of partition is allowing for two states, but it's not clean. It's kind of messy. Arab Jordan was easy. So the Transjordan part, Jordan gets its own state. Well, it's already declared independence anyway. 
And then they take Palestine and they carve that up. It's sort of along today's lines if you look at a map, but then there were Palestinian areas, but they weren't contiguous. I mean, how do you administer a homeland if it's not contiguous? It's like islands within the Jewish lake. I wanted to call it a sea, but it's such a small area the size of New Jersey. And so it's, it's kind of all broken up, kind of this mottled look if you look at the, at the map. But this was the, the partition plan. And then they internationalized Jerusalem, because what are you going to do with Jerusalem? So Jerusalem became a little international island as well as this patchwork of Arab communities and Israeli communities that were supposed to have their own autonomy eventually. This was approved by the General Assembly, but immediately rejected by the Arab world uh, in November of 1947. So it wasn't flying at all with the Arabs. But Israel ran with it. And the moment on midnight on May 14th, 1948, that the British mandate ended, Israel actually declared its own independence earlier in the day. What happened the next morning? A coalition of Arabs marched into Israel with the first Arab-Israeli war in 1948. So that would have been May 15th, that morning. It triggered the war. The coalition moves in. The result of the war he said Israel actually extended its own boundaries. It didn't lose anything. It extended them to near present day proportions. Egypt, though, annexed what is now the Gaza Strip. So some of us wonder, you know, what is this Gaza Strip? What is the West Bank? What is the Golan Heights? What are these, you know, we hear these names and we don't really know what they are. But at the end of the first Arab-Israeli war in 1948, Israel consolidated, that patchwork went away. Israel took back 60% of what had been given to the, the uh, Palestinians um, by the UN plan. But Egypt annexed the uh, Gaza Strip, and Jordan annexed the West Bank, which is just a chunk out of the side of uh, Israel on the west side of the Jordan River, right in the middle. And so here we have this new map now coming out of that. What happens after that, though? is that Israel then forcibly displaces an estimated 700,000 Palestinians from now Israeli-held lands. What the UN had done was taking the heavily, most heavily populated Palestinian areas and let it be Palestine, and the most heavily populated Jewish areas. Now that Israel has taken those back, they forcefully, or the, the Palestinians flee on their own from those areas. They call it the Nakba, which in, uh, in Arabic means catastrophe. For them, it was the Palestinian catastrophe that all of these hundreds of thousands of Palestinians were forcefully displaced. In some cases, the villages from which they came were destroyed after they were forced out. They were renamed. It was almost as if, not almost as if, Israel was trying to erase Palestinian identity from their own land. Mosques were destroyed and so on and so forth. You can see where this left such a bad taste in the Arab mouths. And the tensions then continued through the 50s and through the 60s. Armed conflicts continued until finally in 1967, there is the Six-Day War. And what Egypt did was close shipping to Israel. That point of Israel down at the bottom goes all the way to the Gulf of Aqaba. And that is their outlet 
eventually to the Indian Ocean and their shipping. But at the end of the Gulf of Aqaba is the Straits of Tehran, and they're only 13 kilometers across. And so Egypt blocked that port, basically blockaded Israel. So Israel immediately attacked Egypt, and in one day disabled their entire air force and so had air supremacy. And uh, the war only lasted six days. What happened at the end of that was that Israel took back the West Bank, took back the Gaza Strip, took huge parts of the Sinai Peninsula, and also took the Golan Heights from Syria, which again, if you're looking at a map, is the upper northeastern corner that uh, is, is, used to belong to Syria, and Israel has taken that back as a result of this war in 1967. In 1964, the Palestinian Liberation Organization was founded, and Yasser Arafat, whose name might be familiar to you, took charge in 1969. They began conducting guerrilla warfare and terrorism against Israel, again, with the sole purpose of trying to establish their own autonomous state. They wanted their place to be able to stand as well. In 1993, there were the Oslo Accords, do any of you remember that famous picture of Bill Clinton standing with his arms outstretched and you have Yitzhak Rabin and Yasser Arafat shaking hands in the Rose Garden of the White House? Um, the Oslo Accords actually started in secret in Oslo, Norway, um, between Israel and the PLO. And they were desperately looking for a way for peace. They were looking for a way that there could be some kind of, of uh, harmony in these two peoples living together. And Yitzhak Rabin was willing to work with Yasser Arafat. Eventually, the first accords were signed in, um, in the United States, and then there was a second round that was signed later. But the whole idea of the accords was, first of all, to create the Palestinian Authority, which was another organization that would work toward li uh, granting limited self-governance in the Gaza and also in the West Bank for the Palestinians. That's where they were going to start to have their own autonomous rule. So they created this Palestinian Authority, and maybe more importantly, it meant international recognition of the PLO, of the Palestinian Liberation Organization, as a legitimate negotiating partner in working toward the Palestinian state. Now, how do you think that played back home in both Palestine, or in Gaza, in the West Bank, and in Israel? Well, the extremists of those nations were incensed. They were outraged. And Yitzhak Rabin was assassinated two years later in 1995 because of his work there, because they did not want this to happen on either side. Fast forward to 2005 now, another 15 years or so, 10 years or so, Israel finally decides to unilaterally disengage from Gaza and from North Samaria in 2005. This is under Ariel Sharon. What are they trying to do here? They're trying to improve Israel's security, and they're trying to burnish Israel's image to get them away from, the world was seeing them as occupiers in these areas, in these Palestinian areas. And so Israel pulls out, disengages, in order to try to burnish that credibility uh, on, the, on the international front. And then also to be able to improve their security, to draw more substantial boundaries and borders and fortify them. But this sets the stage, of course, for Hamas, which was actually formed in 1987. But in 2007, 
just two years after Israel pulls out, Hamas takes control forcefully of the Gaza Strip. And so Hamas is in control. And what is Hamas, Hamas uh, committed to? Well, first of all, armed resistance against Israel, but also the creation of a Palestinian state in place of Israel. They don't want to be side by side. They want the entire place, and they want Israel out. That is their whole goal. That is their whole purpose. And now as of 2007, they have control over Palestine. This current Israeli and Hamas war is threatening to bring, obviously, other um, powers into place. In um, 2023, in March, just this year in March, uh, the Knesset, which is the ruling body in Israel, voted to repeal the disengagement order of 2007. But Netanyahu was very firm in that he supported, while he supported the repealing of this, he did not authorize new settlements in the area. Even given the, the disengagement in 2007, there have always been Israeli settlements in the West Bank and in Gaza. Those have never gone away. And so those incursions are continuing to be seen as more and more problematic. And then for the Knesset to repeal that, which would open the floodgates, supposedly, for more incursions into those Palestinian-held areas, um, probably was part of the calculus of Hamas to do what they did in October um, this month. Now, all of this is at the same time sparking speculation uh, in Christian circles uh, because these powers that are starting to line up in one side or another um, are starting to look like the end times um, scenario in Revelation. And I don't know if you're familiar with that, but in Revelation, it talks about the tribulation, which is a seven-year period of great strife, global strife. And halfway through that, there is a battle that's called Armageddon, and I know that you've heard of that, right? Armageddon occurs when a coalition um, attacks Israel and attacks Jerusalem. And it would be nations such as all the Arab Confederacy, Russia, possibly China, possibly. We're using these names of nations from the Old Testament and then trying to say, okay, well, this is the region that now is occupied by these current nations. So we don't really know. But as we see these powers lining up, those um, Bible prophecy experts are saying, okay, we're starting to see the lineup of what could be this coalition that's going to attack Israel. At that midpoint of the tribulation is Jesus Christ's return. And in the run-up to this battle of Armageddon, Jesus is, is said to actually appear out of the heavens with a heavenly army, with a sword that extends from his mouth, and he will single-handedly and his army wipe out this coalition and, of course, save Israel, usher in the thousand-year millennium. So this is what they're looking at, and you're seeing an uptick in, in uh, these Bible prophets and um, all of these podcasts and everything. I'm getting a lot of questions about this. You know, what do you think about that? What's going on? I've told you over and over again that I'm pretty much an agnostic when it comes to end times. I don't think we can really know how these books are supposed to be interpreted in terms of marrying them with current events. Most... Uh, Scholars agree that the Jews understood that any prophecy that didn't come true within the generation to whom it was uttered was a false prophecy. And so they wouldn't be looking for pro um, prophecies to have, um, you know, a 
fulfillment a thousand or two thousand years later. It was always within that generation. And so the, the Christians who have taken over um, the prophecies and the promises to Israel as being kind of a spiritual Israel since Israel didn't recognize Jesus as Messiah believe that these prophecies now are going to apply in end times sometime in the future. Is that correct or not? You know, how can we possibly know? That's the problem with this. What I do know about apocalyptic literature, it wasn't so much about prophesying the future. It was about galvanizing the people to be able to still stand firm with God's promises, even though the national catastrophe had taken place. Revelation was written after the first Jewish-Roman war between those two wars. And so the temple is destroyed. Jerusalem is destroyed. Their homeland is a smoking crater. They're being forced to leave. How are they going to see God's prophecies as being still valid, as still being true in their lives, given the situation? And so... The, the text of apocalyptic literature, the language, the imagery is basically saying if God has to interject physically into human history, his promises will not come back void, cannot happen. And it's meant to encourage. Are we using those books correctly? I don't know for sure. I think not, but I don't know for sure. But one thing I do know is that any interpretation of scripture that causes us to live in fear It's a wrong interpretation. Take that to the bank, please. The people that I see most involved in end times and biblical prophecy are those that have the most bunker mentalities, the ones that are really worried about the future and trying to provide for themselves to be able to survive whatever is coming. That is not the way that we're ever meant to live. We're meant to live here and now in the abundant life that Jesus is talking about. So however you take that prophecy, and you can take it quite literally if you want to, and I have no problem with that, you know, because I'm telling you that sometimes it looks like the headlines are lining right up, right? But if it's causing you to live in fear, think again. Can you hold that viewpoint and still live abundantly right here and right now? Beautiful. Nothing broke. Don't fix it. You know, if you can't, then rethink how you're looking at this. And remember that so many of these what can you call them? They're not televangelists anymore. They're podcast evangelists, you know? (laughs) They're looking for eyeballs, and they're looking for a reason to be able to get your eyeballs. So just, you know, just a grain of salt there, please, in whatever you look at, um, and, and see where you come out. What do you become convinced of as you look at all this? But here's the conclusion that I come to after looking at all of this. There has been a Jewish presence in the Levant for 3,000 years at least, using the most conservative numbers that we can use. And it probably is more like 3,500, you know, and it could be 4,000. We really don't know. But only about 700 of those years were autonomous. Of that 3,000 years that they have been in the Levant, maybe only 700 were they actually in charge and ruling their own homeland. The first five or 600 years, the 150 years of the Hasmonean dynasty, and the last 75 that there has been in Israel in, 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 the, in the Levant. That's it. Arabs have been continuously in place in the Levant, a presence there for 1,400 years. And only the last 100 have they not been in control of what they consider their homeland. 
And so both parties do have this ancient ancestral claim to the land. This is why it's so difficult because they've both been there for so long. And for most of those years, they lived side by side with each other. They were able to do that when there was a separate foreign power over them. But in the last hundred years since mandatory Palestine was, was established, now we've got this strife. And what do you actually do with that? Who's got the real rights? Who's got the property rights here? You know, property rights are an interesting thing. You think about it. If everybody is an occupier and seen as illegitimate if they go in and take the land by force, the trouble is that land is always taken by force, isn't it? What land is there anywhere on this earth that hasn't been taken by force from something? You say, oh, well, the original humans that finally maybe uh, came across the, the land bridge and uh, you know, came into the land and occupied it for the first time, first humans ever there. Okay, are those the only people that have a legitimate claim to land? Some of you who are homeowners, you own a home. You bought that home. You paid for that, and you would die fighting to protect your property. But do we think about it? The stability of the United States for the last only 200 years, and maybe on the West, the Wild West, even less than that, is what allowed for property rights to be bestowed for cash in the first place. Because before that, I mean... Just take your little postage stamp of a house and dig down like in that till archaeologically and see how much blood was spilled over just that little piece of land as it changed hands over and over and over again. Who is going to be considered a legitimate owner of the land? Or are we all just occupiers of the land? These are the questions that start to form as you look at this. How are we supposed to see this? They both have thousands of years of occupation, thousands of years. And even if you could draw a two-state map that made any kind of sense at all between Palestinians and Israelis, what are you going to do with Jerusalem? Oh my gosh, Jerusalem. What a place. Did you know that Jerusalem is considered by the Jews to be the navel of the earth it's the center of the cosmological and spiritual uh, everything of this universe, of, of, this, of this earth. They believe it was the point at which creation took place. They believe it was the place where Abraham was about to sacrifice his son Isaac. It was the place where Solomon erected his temple, and the second temple was erected on that same place. The Israelis call it the Temple Mount. And to, Jew, to Christians, all of those apply. But it's also the place where Jesus taught and was crucified. And it's holy to us as well. And even though the, for the Arabs, for the, for the Muslims, it began in Medina with the vision, in Mecca with the visions, but that foundation stone that lies under the Dome of, rock, the dome of the Rock that stands in place of the temple that has stood since the 600s itself is over a cavern called the Well of Souls and the foundation stone is in there and they believe that's the point at which Muhammad ascended into heaven. With all of that loaded symbolism, spiritual reality for these three religions, how in the world do you come up with some sort of solution that includes Jerusalem? This is the problem. 
The last hundred years have put us in this position, have put them in this position, and there is no easy solution, and there can't be one. But what I'm hoping that we can do, and I'm hoping I didn't just confuse the heck out of you with all of that. I'm hoping at least forget about the dates, but if you can just see the broader picture to realize the complexity of the issue, to realize how there are legitimate claims here, to realize that there have been atrocities on both sides. How do we come together now? And can at least we, as individual micro people, as we read our headlines, as we watch the newsreels, as we stay up with what's going on, as we decide whether we're even going to Israel next year, which is not looking too good, can we retain our own humanity, even in the face of the atrocities that make us sick to our stomachs? Can we still see people trying to work out something and retain our place, our liminal place, as we try to make our own conclusions and then do what we do to continue to live our daily lives? These are the questions that I have as I go through this myself. Okay. We're done with time. How many questions do you all have? Is this something that you could see would be something that you would want to discuss further? Yes? yes? Okay. What we can try to do is make some time next Sunday. And, uh, you know, I'll, I'll see. I don't know if this is going to be a whole session worth of questions. But maybe, you know, and my knowledge is not as deep on this subject as it is on usually what I'm doing on Sundays. I may not have answers for you, but at least we can discuss. But if we do discuss, let's make sure that we do it in such a way that we're operating as much from liminal space as possible. Don't want to have it turn into a food fight, right? So we, we want to be able to discuss between us. Yes, son. That would be fine, too. If you want to do that, you can email me. You can text me questions. That way I can do some research and not just come here cold. That would be great. You know, we can do that as well. Well, the history is one thing, but if we get in discussions, we're going to get into all sorts of areas and, and maybe what ifs and that sort of thing. We're humans, absolutely. And you know, I don't want to, I don't want to, the one time when I delved into this kind of area was at the beginning of the pandemic when everything was just going hog crazy. And it was like, you can't just not talk about this. I mean, it is so present. It is so huge. And so we did. We talked about it for several Sundays going. But I was always talking about it with this idea that we're going to approach it from as much of a micro place as possible. And how, what is our response to these issues more than trying to debate the issues themselves, which we can do ad infinitum and never get anywhere and only lose our relationships. And it'll be the same way here as we talk about Israel and surrounding issues. Okay, well, let's try that next week, and we'll see, we'll see how far we get. Um, but yes, if you do have some things that you really want to talk about, please um, text me, call me, email me, let me know, and uh, I'll try to come as, as prepared as possible. All right. Father, thank you um, just for this time, for the safety of this place, to be able to talk about what we're talking about here. Uh, we are left uh, speechless. We are left just not knowing which way to turn with issues that are so big and so intractable. But we know that what is impossible for us is possible for you. And so again, we turn our attention to you. We rely on you, not our own understanding and not our political power, whatever it may be. But we want to rely on you. And even if that is only to get us through individually through the difficult times, so be it. 
But we do pray for Israel. We do pray for the Palestinian people and everyone who is so affected by this and the absolute abject suffering that is taking place over there breaks our hearts. And so we pray for those people. And if there is something that we can do from this place, this vantage, make that known to us so that we can act on the feelings that we have and the convictions that we hold. Father, thank you once again just for being yourself. Never let us forget we can only love because you loved us first. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand.